Song's very appropriate today because we are talking about reclaiming the world. Reclaiming the world. Um, before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we just uh, we thank you now for this hallowed moment, Lord. We, we do have a story to tell. <clears throat> Somebody told us that story, God, and it changed our lives. And now we have the privilege to tell that story to others. And as we reflect, God, on this call this morning that the disciples received from Jesus Christ himself to go and to tell, <clears throat> to tell the story to the fellow Jews, God, that they, that they might be saved, I pray that we would learn, we would learn from them. We would learn to tell the story and that we would have confidence in it, God, as what it is, Lord, uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so help us tell it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 10. And as I said this morning, we're talking about reclaiming the world. And I put it this way because I think this passage has a great deal of significance, really a lot more significance than maybe we think about at first. It falls within the storyline, and that is so important, the storyline of, um, of the Bible. That is, if we, if we trace the storyline, we, we see that God, that Adam was the first man, and we get a sense of what God created humanity for in the, in the story of Adam, right? He told him to be fruitful and multiply. That is, man wasn't you know, made to be alone, but he was to multiply and spread and fill the earth and have fill the earth and have dominion over it. So man was to, to, to multiply, and he was to fill the earth, and he was to rule the earth, all as God's image. That is, that he reflects God's image. He was made in God's image, and so he represents God. So he was to fill the earth with the image and the glory of God. But we see that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned. They, they fell. And so the rest of the storyline of the Bible, then, is really God working to, to undo the, the works of the devil, to undo sin so that he can restore the world and humanity back into what we were meant to be. And we see this traced out through the storyline of Adam, right? I mean, of, of Abraham. Because he told Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what did he tell, what did he tell Abraham to do? Well, instead of telling him he, he, to do it, he, he made Abraham a promise. I will give you Seed, I'll give you offspring, right? What is, what is that? That's multiplying. And, and to do what? And I'll give you the land of Canaan. What is that? It's, it's like filling the earth, right? And, and, and then he told Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God is telling Abraham that in him, he's going to fix the problem that sin made, not just for him and his family, but for the whole world. And then this, this, this story gets... And then it, can, it continues further to the nation of Israel, where the nation of Israel uh, consisted of 12 tribes, and they inherited the promises of Abraham, and they were to receive the land, and they were to be a, a light. The uh, nation of Israel was to be a light to the nations through their, through their faithful obedience and service and, and set-apartness for God. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, that the nations would come to God through their testimony, through their witness uh, in the world. And so, and so we, see this, we see this unfolding storyline, but we see how, how sin had broken everything. 
and how God is working through this storyline to, re to reclaim the world. <clears throat> but we see, as we get to the end of the Old Testament, that the, the Israel did not fulfill its mission. Right? Israel broke the covenant. They disobeyed God over and over again. And eventually they were exiled out of the land of promise. And we are left at the end of the Old Testament wondering, what about the promise? What about the world? What's going to happen? And then we see Jesus, and he has come to reclaim the world. And that's what we want to talk about this morning from Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says, He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter a house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, uh, when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The word of God. You may be seated. So I want to see three... Uh, Things from our passage this morning, we want to talk about, number one, reconstituting a people. Reconstituting a people. Number two is re-extending God's mercy. Re-extending God's mercy. And number three, rejecting the rejectors. Rejecting the rejectors. So first, we want to talk about reconstituting a people. Reconstituting a people. So as we look at chapter 10, we notice that Jesus is sending out the 12. This is in response to the end of chapter 9, which we talked about last week, where Jesus said, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So it's no accident that in the very next verses, he begins to send out the 12. So Jesus is answering his own prayer, and he's, he, he's, he's telling us how the, our, that prayer of the prayer for laborers for the harvest is going to be answered by uh, Christ sending out people to go and proclaim the gospel. And so he's sending out the twelve. And we see, if, we, if you read through chapter 10, that what Jesus is saying here, it begins with him talking about preaching the gospel to the Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry. But it, it goes and it, it almost becomes a prophecy. And it extends way beyond that, uh, pointing to a time when they would uh, be uh, witnessing of Christ to the kings and to, and to rulers and to, to Caesars and, and to governors and things like that. And about how they bear testimony to Christ. And uh, chapter 10 talks about how following Jesus will be costly. They, they will be rejected. 
They will be rejected in Israel. They will be rejected uh, out in the world in, in, in many cases. Uh, taking back the world from sin and Satan will be costly, right? Jesus, Jesus paid the highest price that there was to take back the world from sin and from Satan by the giving of his own life as the, the, uh, as the payment, the atonement for the penalty of sin so that his people would not have to endure it themselves. It's costly taking back the world from sin and from Satan. And so we, as, as the body of Christ, we go... And, and just like the, the, the disciples, he told them, would suffer for his name. I mean, it's the same way for us. When we go, we make Christ known, and that inevitably is going to involve suffering. And when we suffer for Christ, we, uh, we, we, we show Christ's sufferings in our sufferings. People, people, show, uh, people see Christ's sufferings in our suffering when we are willing to suffer for his name to make him known to them. And... What I, want us, what I want us to see in this text is I want us to see the, the big picture. I want us to, to, to I want to look at some details, but I also want to zoom out and see the big picture of what I believe God is doing in this, in the big storyline of the Bible. And so, first, I just want us to note that Jesus' ministry primarily centered around 12 ordinary men. And I think sometimes that is lost on us, and that's why I've recommended, and I continue to recommend to you, the, the, the online series called The Chosen, you know, go on, go on your app, download the app, and if you haven't yet, go watch the series called The Chosen. You know, th they take some creative liberties on some things, but I think it stays pretty close to the spirit and the storyline of the Bible. And what, is, and what it helps you do, just like if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I, I just encourage you to do that. What it helps you do is it helps you remember that this, we, we talk about the story of the Bible, but when we say story, sometimes we think of fairy tales. But this isn't a fairy tale. These are real people. There's a real man named Jesus Christ who really did heal the sick, who really did raise the dead, and he really did choose 12 men to be his primary plan to save the world. And these people were ordinary people. And that's what watching that, this series will help you realize is that they were people, they had, they were, they, they had misunderstandings, they were afraid, they, they, had, they had their own sin struggles, and yet in spite of all those things, Jesus still chose them and used them. And so we can't, it's, easy to kind of, it's easy to kind of miss that and kind of lionize these people and idealize these disciples when really they were just like us. And yet, even though they were just like us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were changed. And then Jesus used them to do what? To change the world. To change the world. To change the world to the degree that 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, across an ocean, we're worshiping Jesus as king. Because they were faithful to the mission that they've been given. And so as we look at the 12 here, it says, um, he says, uh, he calls them, uh, he, he gave them authority over, every, uh, over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and afflictions. And then it says in verse 2 that the names of the 12 apostles are these. This is interesting here because most of the time in the Gospels, these, they're, not referred to apostles. they're not referred to as apostles, but as disciples. Because apostles, later in, later in the, 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 the early church, the term apostle would, be, would become associated with these, with these specific and a few others who would be added on, specific 
early authoritative leaders of the early church who became eyewitnesses, who, that is, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They physically saw Jesus risen from the dead with their own two eyes and were commissioned, appointed by Christ, to lay the foundation of the early church, to be authoritative leaders in the early church, and to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And yet here, uh, Matthew calls them apostles. And, and apostles, at its root, the word means sent, sent ones. And so clearly what, what Matthew is envisioning here and what Jesus is clearly doing is that Jesus understood that with these 12 men and with others whom he would reveal himself to, like the Apostle Paul, for example, later, is that he understood that he was raising up these and to send out these authoritative leaders, these men who would proclaim Christ, who would, uh, who would, who would uniquely bear this unique authority to make Christ known in the world, to lay the foundation of the church, which would then spread the word of God uh, throughout all suggestive generations leading up to this very day. And notice here it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits and to, to heal every sickness and disease. And so, just like, just like what Jesus did to, to validate his message by his miracles, he gave the apostles the same authority to do that. Anybody could say they were the Messiah, but only Jesus Christ backed up that claim with uh, his, his miraculous works. And then, his, and then the apostles in his, in his place were granted the same authority. In Acts chapter 3, for example, um, the famous story of, of Peter uh, healing the beggar by, by the temple gate. He says, I have no, uh, he comes up to this beggar and, and the, the beggar looks for him to give him something. And, but then Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And then later in verse 16, uh, explaining what happened, Peter says that in his name, that is, uh, uh, that is the name of Jesus, in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know by the faith that is through Jesus. Uh, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect help in the presence of you all. And so this is how we know that Jesus wasn't just another religious guy. He just wasn't another religious teacher. He just wasn't another uh, philosopher or whatever. He, Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so this is how we know. And he gives the disciples, his, his, his disciples, his apostles, the same authority to bear witness to the testimony of Christ. And there's a couple other things I want to note about this passage before we move on. He gives the list of the apostles here, and you can look and you could go and you could compare the lists that are given about the different apostles. But there's a, there's a couple things to note about the list. In every list, Peter always comes first. In, every, in all the lists of the apostles, Peter always comes first. Okay? He's, he's, he's clearly the first among equals of the, apostle, of the apostolic group. Uh, a second thing to notice is that Judas is always mentioned last, for obvious reasons. Okay? Uh, another interesting detail about this list is that Matthew refers to himself as a tax collector. And I've, I've mentioned to you before the reason why I think in, in the other Gospels, Matthew is referred to by his name Levi, but Matthew in his Gospel calls himself Matthew, his, his more famous name. And I, I argue uh, because he wants people to know who he was before he met Jesus and how Jesus changed his life. And notice here one of the, one of the other apostles um, uh, is Simon there, verse 4, is labeled the, the zealot. 
Um, there's some debate there about exactly what this uh, would imply, but the zealots were, uh, during that day, were a cultural, political, r radical group, really. They, they hated Rome, they hated the Roman oppression on the Jewish nation, and they were willing, they, they desired to overthrow the Roman oppression of the Jewish nation by violence, if necessary. And they, they played a role later, uh, later in the Jewish uprising that, that uh, initiated, the, that, set in, that set in motion the events that would ultimately lead to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans, you know, who didn't care for rebellion very much, brought their army and raised the city to the ground. Okay, and so and so, but I just think I just I think if somebody in the first century reading this, they would be shocked at this juxtaposition because look look at the look at the two people on the list that that Matthew d describes here. He says uh, he talks about <clears throat> he says uh, Matthew the tax collector, and then he says Simon the zealot. Now think about that. You have one person who's in league with Rome who has joined the Roman side and who is collecting taxes for Rome as a betrayer of his nation. And guess what? He's walking the same dusty dirt roads with a person who wants to kill Romans. And yet what? Jesus called both of them. And guess what? They became brothers. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that when you meet Jesus, he changes you. And he changes your loyalties, and he changes your loves, and he changes your allegiances, and he changes your perspective. Whereas Matthew, you know, maybe Matthew thought, well, um, you know, well, this, this is our situation, and I'm, I just like being rich, and so I'm just going to do that. And so maybe Matthew's God with his money. And maybe, and maybe Simon, okay, maybe the thing that he thought was most important was we got to get Rome out of here, you know, and, and, uh, and throw off the Roman yoke so that Israel can be free, okay? And then both of them met Jesus, and then Matthew realized maybe money isn't important that I thought it was. And maybe Simon realized maybe the freedom of the nation of Israel isn't as important as I thought it was. Maybe Jesus is more important than both of those things. And so Jesus comes into your life and he reorients and reshapes the way you look at the world, your priorities and what you view as most important in life. And then and in so doing, he is able to unite people who were once different. Because even though they may still disagree on some things, they have both found that, the, that there is one thing more important than everything else. And we agree on that. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's able to unite people. That otherwise would be at enmity in the world. And I think this is so important in our day right now. We're just people just, they fight, they fight, they argue, they argue, and even within the church. And I just want to say, whatever, whatever side you're on, whatever, whatever's going on in this world, the only thing that's going to matter a billion years from now is did you love and serve and obey Jesus Christ. And a lot of people, a lot of people in the church are going to regret all the time they wasted, you know, worried about worldly things. They're going to regret it. A tax collector and a zealot became one in Jesus Christ. And this takes us to the big picture. I think of that, that, that's so important here. And that is, Jesus chose the twelve. And, and it's easy to gloss over that. It's, it's easy to gloss over that. But I think they're significant in the fact that Jesus cho chose twelve. Why twelve? Well, I mean, if you've, if you've read the Bible, the, the, it seems so obvious. And that is, 
that the, the, the recurring theme throughout the Bible uh, regarding number 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 seems to be in the Bible the number of the people of God. And so by choosing 12, it's, it's, it seems very clear what Jesus is doing. And that is that he is, as we said here, he's reconstituting the people of Israel. He's choosing new heads, right? Each tribe has a patriarch, right? The tribe of Levi, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of, of uh, Manasseh and, and, and Ephraim. Each tribe had a patriarch, right? And that's how the tribes were known. But Jesus is choosing, he's, cho he's reconstituting a people. He's choosing 12 new tribes, if you will, of a new people, a new Israel, a new humanity. We see the significance of this in Matthew, uh, in Revelation chapter 7. Um, when uh, John in his vision uh, sees this, he says, I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, uh, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, uh, and, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So if you wondered the significance of 12, you probably figured it out by now. Okay? 12,000. And, and so the point there, I think, the point there, I think, is that he, in Christ, Jesus is reconstituting the people of Israel. He's making a new Israel, a new people of God. A new people of God. A new people who are descendants, not, not just of Abraham, but but who are heirs of the promises of Abraham, not by blood, but by faith. A people who, who are citizens of the kingdom, again, not by blood, but by faith. And in choosing 12 and sending them out, he is recommissioning a new Israel to fulfill the role that she was supposed to fulfill, but didn't. And that is to be a light to the nations. And, that, and, and he's doing that through this choosing of the 12 apostles. And we know that from Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. It says, uh, uh, John, in his vision of the New Jerusalem, said, he says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And if you go back and you look in Revelation, you see that this heavenly city is where God's people will dwell forever. And it's upon the foundation of the twelve apostles. And so in choosing the twelve, God is Christ is reconstituting the people of God, the true humanity. He is remaking people into what we were made to be through faith in Him. So number one, we see reconstituting a people. Number two, we see re-extending God's mercy, re-extending God's mercy. And we see this in verses 5 through 13 there. And the first thing that I think we need to look at there is in verse 5 when he says that Jesus, that he commanded them not, not to go to uh, the Gentiles or the, or, or the Samaritans. And uh, we may wonder, you know, what's, what's the deal with that? And I think the answer to that is that we have to understand the stage that Jesus and his disciples are within, the, within the, the, the flow of redemptive history. Jesus and the disciples are in a unique season 
in all of redemptive history. Because Jesus came at the end of the age, the end of the old covenant, and he came bringing, bringing in the new covenant, bringing in, uh, bringing in a, a fundamental change in the people of God. And so Jesus and the apostles stand in a unique season that was the overlap of the ages. Okay, the overlap of the ages. And so it was fitting in the mind of God that when he came, that the Christ, that Christ had come. So, so the Old Testament focused primarily on the nation of Israel, right? Primarily on the nation of Israel. That's why if you read the New Testament, the, the, or the first Christians who were all Jewish had a problem figuring out, well, how in the world are Gentiles? Where, how do Gentiles fit into this? Because it's been the Jews this whole time, right? And, and so, but... And, that's, and I would say part of that is Jesus came in and it was fitting in the mind of God to first preach the gospel to the Jews. They had the promises. They were the Old Testament people of God. So God would give them the first shot at hearing and receiving the gospel. And tragically, most of them still rejected it. Just like their forefathers. Just like their fathers whose hearts were hardened in the wilderness and in the exile. Okay? Still, God in his mercy did that. He extended it to the Jews first, and that's what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul, who was the Gentile, who was the Apostle to the Gentiles, said in Romans uh, 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Greek. And so the gospel's for everyone, but Jesus, in the plan of God, proclaimed it to the Jews first. They get the first shot at salvation of redemption that was promised to them, even though by and large they rejected it. But even so, even, even in spite of this command uh, at this particular stage in history that Jesus told his disciples not to go to the Gentiles or Samaritans, it anticipates what Jesus would tell them at the end of the book of Matthew, which was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? A second thing I want to see from this passage is that their message that Jesus sent them out with was the same as Jesus' message, right? It, it says there, um, it says uh, to, to proclaim as you go, verse 7, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the wilderness, the message that he preached was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message is the same. God's kingdom has come in Christ. The kingdom of God is invading the world in Christ. And you see, many people miss that because the only, the only kingdom that most people are concerned about is the kingdoms of the world. What's going on with this country? What's going on with that country? What's going on with the Jewish nation versus the Romans? You know, that's, that's most of the time, that's the only thing people are concerned about. And Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And so if you miss this, you've missed the whole point. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and it's not, it doesn't have, it doesn't have geographic boundaries. It's not populated by people of only one ethnic group like many nations are. It's something totally different, and it's breaking in to the world. And, and because the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, you become citizens of that kingdom by repentance and faith in Christ. Not by, not by citizenship in an earthly nation, not by, born to, not by being born to a certain family. It's by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you've got to do something about it. To not decide is to decide. 
And that's what they went proclaiming. Another thing to notice is that Jesus said, told them, you received without paying, therefore give without pay. This, 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 he, he taught them for free. They were saved by grace through faith. And so they must give it away freely. The gospel must always be free. That's what we just, we, 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 never, we, never, we never make an attachment to the gospel. That's why Baptists, for example, have historically believed in religious freedom. The separation of church and state was, not, was never meant to say you couldn't bring religion into politics. It was meant to say that politics can never govern religion. We get it backwards, right? The, the founders assumed that, pol- that religion, one's religion would be brought into one's politics. It was just to say that politics can't control religion because you can't coerce, because Christians and historically Baptists have firmly believed that you cannot coerce true faith. So if the government establishes, makes an establishment of religion, right, then people will be inclined to do it for its civic benefits, not because they actually believe in Christ. And we don't, we don't want people to follow Christ for, because they might get a better interest rate. We want people to follow Christ because they've repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. Okay? So that's, that's the whole point. And so we can't miss it. We, we, have to re, we, we never attach anything to the gospel. The gospel must always be free of any constraint, free offer of the gospel. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Another thing Jesus told them to do was to take nothing with them. To take nothing with them. That is, we trust God's, we trust God's providence as we preach Christ. God takes care, God takes care of his people. Right? We don't have to worry about that. There's a lot of people, and a lot of people are worried. But Jesus said, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. God knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. And so you just, it, you just go. You just go without fear. And God will provide exactly what you need to fulfill his mission for you. And so, if we zoom out now and look at the big picture story here, God, if you read the prophets, God and many other prophets, God told Israel, it's amazing, he he described Israel as an adulterous bride, right? He had betrothed Israel to himself, he had saved her, he had brought her into this land, and yet she committed adultery on him over and over again with idols, with the gods of the nations, right? And yet in spite of all that, in spite of all that, the prophets, they, they, they preached the judgment that would come because of their idolatry, but they also preached that there would be a day that would come when God would have mercy on his people again. And I would just want to suggest to you that this seemingly insignificant event is God keeping that promise? Because what is he doing? He's going first to the Jews who had rebelled against him over and over and over again. And what is he doing? He's giving them yet another chance to say, come back. Come back. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's God, it's God re-extending his mercy as, as he promised he would do over and over again. He's extending it. He extended it again, and he's extending it right now. The final thing 
I want to talk about, so we've seen reconstituting a people, re-extending God's mercy, and number three, rejecting the rejectors. And so, uh, in, in Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about, we should, we should note the kindness and the severity of God. <laughs> the two go together. God is merciful, but he's also just. And in the same way that God is extending this mercy to Israel yet again, there will also be a price to pay for those who reject that mercy yet again. In other words, patience is a good thing, but sometimes you can be, but, but sometimes patience becomes overlooking sin and rebellion, and God won't do that. So God is patient, but there comes a time, there comes a point when patience must run out in order to give evil what it's due, to give sin what it's due. And Jesus is saying, that this day has come. That the day has come. This is God's mercy. God's mercy in its greatest form is Jesus Christ. There is no mercy greater than the mercy God has given in Jesus Christ. It cannot be found. It doesn't exist. There is no mercy greater than God forgiving you of all your sins and refusing to hold them against you, but freely welcoming you into his family forever. It's free. It's a gift. There's no mercy like it. But what will happen to you if you reject so great a mercy? And that's, that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The same thing the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2 when he says this. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. You see, he's saying the same exact thing that I was just saying. It was attested to us by the Lord. It was told to us by those who heard it, the apostles. It was vindicated by their miracles. This is the message. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So as I close this morning, I just want to make it clear. The message as it rang in the ears of those people 2,000 years ago, it still rings today. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's here right now. And if, and if there's someone in this room, if there's someone watching online who hasn't surrendered to Jesus, I just want to say... The kingdom, it's near. It, it, it has come. It is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And God will show you unspeakable mercy and bring you into his family. But I just want to say that there will be a moment and God might spare you. I don't know. Every day is a gift from God. Little girl is sick. I imagined last night and was, was my heart, my eyes began to well up thinking that that was my little girl. Every day is a gift from God. 
God might give you another chance to repent of your sins and believe in Him tomorrow, but He doesn't owe you that. And you might not make it home today. God's mercy is great. But there will be a day when the time of patience is up. And the trump will sound and the Lord will descend. And it will be too late. And, it will, and either, either that day will come or we'll die and go and stand before the Lord. And either way, when, that, when either one of those two things happens, it's too late. It's too late. Repent and believe for it's drawn near. And God's mercy is great. Let's pray.